are in the third part of a 15-part series on the book of Genesis, God's gifts in Genesis, as we come to the third chapter today. And this is such a lengthy reading, I'm going to read this for us, but please feel free to follow along in your Bible or your bulletin insert with our passage of Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Now notice that. Adam was there all along, her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, as Philip said to the children a few moments ago, we're going to talk about something today that no one likes to talk about. 
In fact, just to prove that, I started working on this passage on Monday and I decided to look up the Charlotte Observer website and put in their search for their paper that day this topic, the word sin. Do you think it was in the paper even one time? No, not at all. And I know a lot of sin took place the day before on Sunday, but it was not reported that way, was it? We're going to talk about sin because our passage gives us a brief glimpse of when sin entered into this world. Now, please understand, we don't see the word sin mentioned in Genesis 3 at all. But we do see this disobedience of Adam and Eve. We see how they sin against God. We see the consequences of their sin. And more importantly, we see God's action in the face of sin. As you know or should know, sin is a topic that enjoys frequent mention in the Scriptures. More than 400 times in the Bible will you find the word sin. And there are hundreds of times you find its derivatives like sinners and sinful and sinning. You get the idea. This is a topic God brings to our attention a great deal in His Word. So obviously it should be something we discuss quite often. And you visitors that are here today, you're probably thinking, why did we choose this church today to hear about sin? Well, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about the bad news of sin that we find in this text, but we're also going to talk about some good news that we find in this passage as well. But before we get to that good news, let's talk about what sin really is. The church father Augustine said that the essence of sin is pride. The essence of sin is pride, and he went on to define sin as any action, word, or desire contrary to God's eternal law. And we could find other definitions of sin. Westminster Shorter Catechism has a definition that I'm sure Philip could quote for you. There are other places we find what sin is. The Bible itself, in Hebrew at least, has at least three different words that typically are translated as sin. There's one main word in the Greek in the New Testament is translated as sin over and over again. And those meanings of those words range anywhere from missing the mark or the goal to the breach of a relationship to ungodliness, perversion, rebellion. Yet the common theme of all scriptural expressions of the nature of sin is the idea that sin is a state of being that separates us from God. The Westminster Confession of Faith expresses this in its sixth chapter when it references this very, very passage. It states, by this sin, they, meaning Adam and Eve, fell from their original communion with God. And we can see this so clearly in our passage about Adam and Eve this morning. 
that relationship that was heretofore perfect has been broken and God, as is always the case, is not the one who has moved away or broken the relationship. Their disobedience, their sin has initiated this separation from God. And so one of their consequences is that God displaces them from the garden, which for me symbolizes a loss of direct access to God. And that's what would have been most important to the Hebrews who read this book of Genesis originally. The fact that access to God has been lost. There's no direct access. We talk about sin in terms of total depravity and original sin and those sorts of things, and that's fine. But that's not what would have been most important to the original readers. It's this broken relationship, this loss of of being able to see God and speak with Him anytime, any place, and participate in the blessing He had given at the end of chapter 1. But we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about the consequences of sin when uh, we're still talking about its definition and more uh, importantly, why sin really is, how it came about. And I hope you noticed that Genesis 3 didn't give us a whole lot of details there. This chapter just sort of begins strangely by saying the serpent was more crafty. And in the Old Testament, that word crafty can have a good meaning and it can have a bad meaning. More crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In other words, not only is the word sin not found in this passage in Genesis 3, but you also won't find the word devil or Satan. And while Satan is not mentioned in Genesis 3, it's clear from the teaching of Jesus in John 8, it's clear from the teaching of John in his book of the Revelation, and it's clear from the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, 20, that they all three saw this work going on in Genesis 3 as that of the work of Satan. In speaking of him, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John, in his book of the Revelation, calls him the deceiver of the whole world. That's who Satan is, and that's what he does. And we can see that clearly in our passage this morning. We have to remember that God had given certain specific stipulations about this one tree. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in our text, notice how Satan first twists the truth, asking, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see how he cast doubt. That's what he's good at. Eve answers correctly with God's words, and and then Satan contradicts the word of God. That's what he's also good at. You will not die. And then he goes on to pass off lies as the truth Something else he's very good at. 
In verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As Jesus said in John 8, the devil has nothing to do with the truth. And you and I must remember that always because every time we're tempted, we're tempted with a truth that has been twisted or with a contradiction of God's truth in His Word or with blatant lies. Temptation comes to us that way over and over again. And sometimes we're tempted with something that's good. I mean, think about how one of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness from Satan was to rule the kingdoms of the world. Well, that was Jesus' destiny. There's nothing wrong with that. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. The temptation came in that he must bow down to Satan, which goes against the truth of God's Word. You shall not have any other gods before me. And not only that, but he would not have waited on God. He would not have taken those kingdoms in God's perfect timing. And I mention that to say that that's usually where you and I get in trouble. We don't wait on God. Think about how Abraham and Sarah didn't wait on God and what happened. They didn't wait for God to conceive, have have Sarah conceive Isaac. They couldn't wait. And so they had Ishmael. And you see what kind of trouble we have over the world today because of that one sin, that one mistake. That's how you and I get in trouble as well. Well, Jesus didn't yield to the temptations that Satan threw at him and his relationship with God remained intact. It remained perfect. He says, I and the Father are one. But not, that's not the case with Adam and Eve. Our, our passage portrays very clearly what happens when we yield to temptation and sin. Our relationship with God is then broken. There's guilt. And there's fear. We're now afraid of the one who created us and loves us. And not only is our relationship with God harmed, but even those around us. We see the blame game going on here in this passage where Adam blames Eve first and then he blames God, this woman that you gave me. Eve blames the serpent. We've all been there and done that. So we see that sin produces broken relationships even with those closest to us. And Frederick Beekner, he's an author and preacher, he has some insight on this. He compares all of humanity to a giant spider web when he says, touch it anywhere and you set the whole thing a-tremble. And that can be good and bad because as each of us lives life each day, there's a rash word here that we give and a kindness there. There's a loving favor that we do for this person and a mean gesture to that one. An endless series of of good and evil all over the world. What we do touches others either for good or bad. And thus sin touches 
all of our relationships. Genesis 3 makes that so clear and we need to see that every single relationship of Adam and Eve was affected. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other as husband and wife, their future relationships with their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. You see, this destroys the old argument of two consenting adults that our society likes to use all of the time. You know how people in our society will say whenever they want to break God's law, well, whatever two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home is up to them. It doesn't hurt anyone. Well, the Bible begs to differ. Sin always has consequences. And it has consequences for those relationships as they move outward, like concentric circles on a pond when a stone is thrown. And we see that in our text. It may be that Thomas Carlyle, he's a philosopher, not a theologian, it may be that he understood this as well as any theologian when he said the deadliest sins were the consciousness of no sin. You hear that? The deadliest sins were the consciousness of no sin. And what's so amazing here is that even though Adam and Eve do live contrary to what God said, even though they do disobey, even though they portray the Apostle Paul's definition of sin that he gives us in Romans 14, 23, when he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, that in the midst of their disobedience and the consequences we think we'll see, we find God's gift of saving mercy and grace. Is that unexpected to you? Think about who God is. Think about His character. Think about His faithfulness, the fact that He is righteousness and holiness but that He's also love. You see, guilt is not the question in this story. Adam and Eve are guilty. They know it. That's why they're hiding. We know it. They've listened to God's hope for their lives and have decided to go their own way. When Satan told Eve, you can be like God, that that sounded very appetizing to her. Oh, I can be like God. Is it not insightful that when the Apostle Paul describes Jesus for us in Philippians 2, that Jesus is the opposite? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, that's the foundation under our sin. We want to be like God. That's why the essence of pride is sin. Well, we see the words of the curse of sin in our text, and they sound debilitating, and they are. And you and I have lived a lot of those consequences. We've fumed over those thistles and thorns, the fact that it's hard to get ahead in life. That's what the Bible's describing there. 
That's hit all of us. Just when we get a little bit in savings there, all of a sudden there's a hailstorm, and now we've got to pay the deductible to fix the roof. Or the car goes on the blink, and we've got to fix that. Thistles and thorns. And many of you ladies in the congregation today have labored hard and, and painfully over childbirth. Do I hear an amen on that? Some of us have lived and others of us still live in marital relationships where one tries to control all of the time instead of a a mutual subjection as Paul teaches in Ephesians 5. And it's not just consequences like that individually that you and I live, but we also see the corporate nature of sin all around us. There are unholy systemic business practices that prey on the poor. There are selfish power mongers in this world today who are so arrogant that they even kidnap hundreds of schoolgirls as a show of both force and a veiled threat of what can happen to you if you don't submit to my power and authority. All of this and more is a terribly sad picture of the effects of sin on our world and, and all of us who live in it. And we need to see this sin and and think about this sin as painful as that can be because we can't understand God's grace and mercy without an awareness of our sin and fallenness. A realization of how fallen we truly are brings about a renewed appreciation for God's grace and His mercy, for His compassion poured out upon us just as we see His compassion poured out upon our first parents here in Genesis 3. Because we need to see that the miracle is not that they're punished, but that they live. Paul teaches in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man. And that's our bad news today. The fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God as Paul teaches in Romans 6. But the good news is that life comes by this same God. Even in the midst of the consequences of their sin, God does for them, for Adam and Eve, what they cannot do for themselves. They don't know what to do. They're ashamed. They're out of sorts. They're in a broken relationship with their God. But God knows what to do and He takes care of it. He clothes them. That's a sign He's giving them life. And He cares for them and makes a way of life for them even in the midst of the curse of death. And that's what He's done for you and me as well. The bad news is that in Adam all die, but the good news is also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is our way of life even in the death of this world of which we're a part. This is what Peter means, I think, or part of it, when Jesus 
asked the disciples if they wanted to leave him one day. You know, that was in a, one of those downhill times in Jesus' public ministry. His ministry was like the life of any church. Churches have ups and downs. And this was a downtime in Jesus' public ministry because scores of disciples were walking away from him because of a hard teaching that he had given. And so Jesus turned to his own disciples and said, Do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered for the group when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what Jesus gives us. Eternal life, even in the midst of death. Now, you and I, we've never known what paradise is like. Our relationship with God has been broken from even the time we were conceived with original sin and with the sins that we continue to commit each and every day. But God bridges that great gap that sin causes between Him and us. He bridges it with the cross of Jesus Christ. And how His own perfect life was given on the cross for your sins and for my sins. It's like Paul tells us, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And while we rejoice in that good news of God's saving grace in Christ, we don't just sit around and do nothing until God brings all of His purposes to fruition and Jesus Christ returns in glory and honor when every knee will bow to Him. We've got work to do. Because we see this picture in our text of the constant warfare, the battle that's going on between God's kingdom and Satan and his followers. We see it in that very famous phrase, how we bruise Satan's head and he bruises our heel. Some people see that as a reference to the work of Christ, and it is. And I've probably said that before, but it's not so much a reference to the work of Christ in the way we think that it is, at least not scripturally speaking. Have you ever noticed that phrase in the New Testament anywhere? All of these gospel writers who are quoting prophets to make sure that we understand that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus will do what it takes to bring God's purposes to fruition. None of them quote this except for the Apostle Paul at the end of his book of the Romans, chapter 16, where he tells that church at Rome that God will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now, do you hear that? It's the church of Jesus Christ, the church that's living under Him as its head through the power of His Holy Spirit that will bruise the head of Satan. And what that means is that you and I have homework today. We have to go home and think about how we're going to live in the weeks to come through the power of God's Spirit so that we are bruising Satan's head with how we live. 
not just individually, but corporately as a church. I know some of the families uh, talk about my sermon on Sunday lunch every week. So that's what you can talk about today. You can talk about how can I live in the days to come through God's Spirit so that Christ is bruised, so that Satan is bruised by the church of Jesus Christ. And then once you figure out what that is, then go and live it to God's honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father,